Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. My guests today are Emily and Mitchell Kleonsky, husband and wife, and co-authors of a new book, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. Emily is a physician specializing in psychiatry and neurology. Mitchell is a board-certified neuropsychologist. They maintain separate but overlapping practices in Springfield, Massachusetts, and between them have evaluated and treated more than 10,000 people suffering from memory and other cognitive problems. So thank you both for joining me today. Our pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. First of all, I want to congratulate you for writing on a very complex subject in language that even I could understand, and that's rare. So you must have worked hard to get it there. We did. Our goal was not to dumb it down, but rather to translate it in the way that we talk to our patients. That was the whole idea, that if you felt as if we were in the same room talking to you about what was going on, that you'd feel engaged and that you'd be more likely to understand what's going on and then to use that information to make changes. So thank you for the compliment. We probably succeeded in doing that. I I feel like you have. Um, Now, the title is Dementia Prevention. Does that mean that it's targeted for a younger audience than those of us who have been around for six or seven decades? It's like golf, Don. You play it where it lays. We're all at different points on this journey, and we all have opportunities to have a better impact on our brains. We've seen people, I've seen people particularly in their 70s who come in with cognitive impairment, and within a year, year and a half, they're now functioning at what for them would be a normal level. So it's never too late to start. And it's certainly better if we can get you to start earlier. Yes. And you you make one statement in the book that I'm sure is true, but that I found very difficult to swallow. Uh, The number one cause for dementia is age. Uh, I do intend to age in spite of the risk, uh, but do I have a choice? (laughs) Well, actually you do, but the alternative is not so great. Uh, But When you look at all, if you boil it all down into a statistical model, age is the major cause. You know, at age 65, you have about a 10% risk. Get into your mid-70s. Statistically, that doubles into your 20%. You make it to mid-80s, and your risk is about 40%. The question is, which side of that line? Do you want to be on the 40% side or the 60% side? And we know there's some people who even at the age of 100, what we call super agers, are still thinking like they did when they were 50 or 60. So the goal is to put yourself in that risk. Sort of like fire prevention. You know, there's going to be fires. You don't want your house to be burned down. And while we do know the first set of genes that govern those super agers, such as the clotho gene, we have no way of duplicating that in everybody who would want one, including myself. Speaking of genes, uh, my mother was uh, an Alzheimer's sufferer, 
And uh, knowing that there's a genetic component to it has certainly got me concerned. Um, To what extent is it genetic and to what extent might her, her issue have been that she just kept drinking too much sweet tea? Well, given that you're in Baltimore, that's a tough question because I don't expect anybody to give up their sweet tea, at least not easily. Um, Genetics does count for an awful lot. It really does. And the important thing is, though, regardless of the genetic inheritance that over which you had no control, what the large population studies and epidemiology tells us is that if we really do maximize all the preventative things that we can, that we have a chance, again, population-wise, of reducing the risk of getting Alzheimer's by 50%, or or better way of putting it, out of one out of two people don't need to get dementia if they take the appropriate steps and are really consistent about it. So there is a way of reducing the impact of your genetic burden. I also am the son of a mother who developed dementia. So while her dementia probably was more of what we call vascular dementia, and as we talk about in the book, there are a number of different kinds of dementia. Some of them are combinations of Alzheimer's with other factors. My mother's case, it probably was more cerebrovascular, more circulatory, but they used to call hardening of the arteries then it was true Alzheimer's disease, you still get into the questions of genetics. Part of the question, though, is not just did your one parent have dementia, it's did both parents have dementia? And in the cases of one parent, how many siblings did they have and how many of them had dementia? So, you know, in some families, especially some families that are very intrabred, there's some areas in Mexico and South America where the people are living in valleys and everybody is related to everybody else. You look at those families and people in their 50s, every one of them has dementia. And those are the really hardcore genetic variants. Most of what we're experiencing here in the United States and throughout the rest of the world is more of an episodic kind of dementia. We call it sporadic. Sporadic. That was the word I was thinking. Thank you. Yeah, sporadic dementia, where the genes are important, but not the telling of the the, the tale. They're just part of what contributes. The other interesting part of your question, Don, was the sweet tea addiction. Um, Here's an interesting thought for you. Published in the New England Journal of Medicine, probably around 2009, 2010, was a very interesting, large, well-done study that pointed out that people who have the higher quartile, the higher range of normal blood sugars, have three and four times the rate, the risk of getting dementia than people who have the lowest normal range of blood sugar. So you don't have to have insulin resistance to have a significantly greater risk of developing dementia. You just have to be at the the higher range of normal blood sugar levels. So if we get back to sweet tea and I have somebody who has a definite genetic risk, I will literally urge them to do everything that they can 
to get their carbohydrate load down, get their glycemic index down, get the exercise up and do everything that we can to get that blood sugar over a 90 day level as low as we can get it without having you go unconscious due to lack of blood sugar. <laughs> same thing with blood pressure. Okay. That's, I would do the exact same thing with blood pressure. Okay. You got to be really careful. You got to make sure that that brain gets enough blood so that you stay alert and you're not depriving brain cells of oxygen or glucose. But the reality is, is we really do want to keep it as low as possible. Um, although as we, some of us get older, those little blood vessels up there in our brain have gotten used to a higher level of blood pressure. So we may not want to have it at 90 over 60 or 100 over 60 like we preferred to when we were in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s. In our 80s, we may tolerate, in fact, we may need that 100 to 120 as the top systolic number. One of the things that I think is a concern for most of the people uh, our age is being able to distinguish what's normal aging and what's serious problems. Do you have some guidelines of, of when to push the panic button and when to say not to worry? Mitch, why don't you start off with that one? That's the number one question people come in. As a neuropsychologist, they start talking to me about not being able to remember names. And I confess that I've had that problem for the last 60 years. Uh, that you know, I can tell you the life story, I can remember that. But your name is only really encoded in some very small areas of the brain. Faces are encoded in much larger areas. So you're able to hold on to that facial memory a lot better. That itself, name forgetting, is not a big thing, except if it's somebody that you're repeatedly forgetting and they're really well known to you. It's also not uncommon for someone in a tense situation, like at a party, if they're nervous, forget their wife or their husband's name. Happens all the time. Doesn't mean that they're losing it. It means that they're nervous in the moment. The typical things I hear about are you know, going into a room to do something and saying, why did I come in here? putting down a coffee cup and wondering, where did I leave that? Or where did I leave my keys? Uh, I had a patient who told me that she keeps a landline only for the purpose of calling her cell phone because she loses her cell phone so often. <laughs> so all these are examples. They're, they're phenomena. The, the problem is that it overlaps normal functioning and worrisome cognition. And many of the people I see who are actually demented tell me they've got no problems at all. They typically say, you know, I only remember what I want to remember. It's a nice rationalization mm -hmm. for forgetting a lot of things that they otherwise should remember. This question actually led us about 15 years ago to develop a five-minute test that doctors could give their patients and fit it into a normal annual wellness visit. It's called the Memory Orientation Screening Test. It's been used by a variety of doctors in different settings. We've published four papers on this in peer-reviewed journals, and it's very accurate. The problem is it's another five minutes in a doctor's busy schedule. It's very hard to get them to adapt to something like this and adopt it as part of their normal 
course of business. And a while back, Medicare used to pay for it, and then they stopped paying for doctors to do it. That further put a nail in the coffin of a test like this. Our current goal is to develop a type of test just like this that can be given by family members so that you could test your mother-in-law's cognition and see if it's something you have to bring to the doctor's attention. We can even do it with your spouse or with a sibling. So that's sort of on our next horizon for what we're going to do uh, in the next year is bring the most to home as a way of uh, sort of the home version of Price is Right. You know, we want to be able to people play it at home along with us. The other thing that that um, that is worth mentioning is it's not all about memory. Um, there's this thing called executive function. A lot of people can have dementia, particularly of the non-Alzheimer's type. And where they begin to notice problems is when they have trouble multitasking, where previously they used to be able to do two or three things at a time and not lose track of anything. All of a sudden, uh, mom, who used to be able to get the Thanksgiving table, all, you know, all the dishes on the table at one time, perfectly done. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you realize that the turkey at five o'clock in the afternoon is still frozen, but, you know, three other things are burned. Or that the guy who's painting the porch manages to paint himself into a corner instead of leaving himself a way to get down the stairs. So it's a failure in planning or organization or abstractly thinking about things or understanding the consequences of one's actions. Uh, so some of the deficits may show up in managing one's finances, and those can be very easily dismissed. You know, you, you find somebody who's had all their bills pile up on their dining room table and, oh, that's just a bunch of coupons. So that's the other thing to be aware of, not just memory deficits, but you know, the everyday functional deficits that really might keep us from being able to live on our own independently, which is what we all want. Absolutely. So what I was going to mention before is when you have that home, <clears throat> that home test, be sure and write a, a, a telling introduction to explain how you're going to introduce that into a family conversation without a fist fight, because I can see the potential there for horrific results. Why are you giving me this test? What do you think? That could happen, although it may be also, as I tell my patients, a reassuring thing when the person tests normally. So it may be the kind of thing where you want to get a baseline while everything is still looking good. So mm -hmm. if there's any changes later on, you'll know that it's time to do something. It's also important with any kind of cognitive decline to act as early as possible. I'm so happy when people come in and they test normally because A, I can reassure them. B, I can talk with them about dementia prevention habits so we can look into an analysis of how they're exercising and if they're having a sleep problem and if they're doing things that could potentially lead to problems down the road. And then we've got that baseline set up and even if they got some problems early on, the treatment options are so much better if you catch it early. This is one of these situations where delay in diagnosis makes for very poor outcomes. 
So we've talked about different measures of prevention. And of course, without giving away the whole context of your whole book, can you outline what the major sorts of preventive measures are? Just briefly, things we should be paying attention to? So the model that we build in the book has five different areas of change possibilities, or at least places to take a look. There's a whole section on things we can't do any more about. These are the things that have passed. Our genetics, our early life experiences, our educational level, the kinds of things that happen with head injuries early in life. So that's one of the five. But what we really start to focus on are some of the vascular conditions, particularly diabetes and hypertension, both of which are oftentimes fueled by people who are still smoking cigarettes, who are eating more than their body was intended to metabolize. In other words, they're overweight. Right. And they're getting too little physical activity. So these are the people whose blood vessel system is beginning to have problems due to those kinds of midlife factors. Add to this the fact that many of these people, and even people who are not overweight, are also not breathing well while they're sleeping. So we're real advocates of people being tested for sleep apnea, because if you're not getting enough air down your lungs, guess what? You're not getting enough oxygen to your brain. That causes really significant changes. The third area we look at is what you're taking either as prescription or non-prescription medications, particular focus on long-term use of anti-anxiety medications, the benzodiazepines, some of the nighttime go-to-sleep medications you can buy over-the-counter, the ones with the PM at the end, because those typically contain diphenhydramine, which is a fancy word for Benadryl, which can suppress some of your cognitive functioning. Hmm. Then there's things like alcohol, and we're still trying to figure out, you know, is there a good amount of alcohol to drink? If so, what's the upper limit that's safe? And that's controversial and has gone back and forth. You know, the general rule is that, uh, you know, you don't want to have more than two drinks a day, primarily. If you're a man. If you're a man and more than one drink a day if you're a woman. The other thing goes along with that is the recent increase, especially in states like we live here in Massachusetts, where cannabis is now legal. So we've got patients coming in their 60s, 70s, even older, who are now using on a pretty near nightly basis a THC-containing product. The THC content of these is anywhere from 18 to 30%, which is compared to what people used to do back in the 60s and 70s, where the typical THC content was 4%. So we're now looking at stuff that's six to seven times stronger in a brain that's 50 years older. And guess what? That's going to cause some problems in how you think. And it's subtle. You won't necessarily recognize it until you decide to do the experiment of going for a couple weeks without using it. 
And suddenly you start to think about things a little differently and you're less forgetful and you may be able to not stumble over your wife's name when you're introducing her. So those are just some of the things. I mean, hearing loss is also a big thing. We have a lot of people going for hearing tests because it turns out that even subtle hearing loss causes brain changes, actual measurable changes in this thickness of the brain that's associated with memory loss. As does sight loss. Wow. So you get those sensory deprivations. And people say, well, I put them in whenever I'm going to be talking with someone. And that's not enough. They need to be using them throughout the day when they're listening to the birds and they want to hear all the Some of the stuff they don't want to hear, the background noises of everyday life, actually are constantly stimulating their brain in a way that they can't, that they're missing if they're not hearing well enough. And then there are the, the last area, which has to do with some very technical uh, metabolic areas that sometimes need to be looked at, which includes things like adequacy of certain vitamin levels and, and certain mineral levels, which are independent and well-accepted causes of dementia, completely apart from genetic causes. Hmm. So those need to be evaluated and you will need the help of your, of your primary care provider to do that and but, correct them if they need to be. You'll notice we haven't talked very much about food. I have noticed. It's interesting question. Yeah. And yet the number one books on Alzheimer's disease are all Alzheimer's diets. You would think that we would have cured Alzheimer's at this point by eating differently because the food we eat has got to be the most important thing for fixing this problem. And we'd have Alzheimer's restaurants where you could go in and eat your way to better brain health. <laughs> well, that was why I asked about the sweet Truth tea. Is. Yeah, well, you know, excessive sugar, but it also causes oftentimes excessive weight. So it's not just the food, but it's also what it does to you and the amount that it puts on and you know, empty calories. And there is no one answer to dementia any more than there is any one food that will prevent it. So you can eat a ton of wild blueberries and it's not going to help. But isn't it just like us Americans to hope that it would? <laughs> Absolutely. People, that, that, aside from what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, the other question that we get asked all the time is, doctor, what should I eat to preserve my brain? The answer we give is, it's not going to be, can you eat your way into good brain health? You can walk your way into good brain health. Maybe. Maybe. You can interact and stimulate your brain into better brain health. Eating? Eat what you want, pretty much. Try to stay away from the polysaturated uh, fats and a lot of sugars and carbohydrates. And you know, maybe add some olive oil. That probably is a benefit. Maybe some, uh, some extra fish and legumes in your diet. Okay. Let's but, uh, go ahead. It's not the food so much. Okay. Let's say I visit my doctor and... I get a diagnosis of mild cognitive decline. Does that mean dementia is inevitable down the road? No, not necessarily. Means that your risk over, assuming it is an accurate diagnosis, and that's a big risk 
because unless there's been some fairly decent testing done, mostly what your doctor's doing is using your complaints to make a diagnosis. It's rare that the doctor's actually testing anything. If you walked in and said, doctor, I've got chest pain, the doctor says, well, you know, your diagnosis is chest pain. You'd say, yeah, that's what I came in complaining about. You'd want a more accurate diagnosis. But in the area of mild cognitive impairment, you go and say, I'm not thinking so well. The doctor says, well, you got mild cognitive impairment. It's very circular reasoning. That's why neuropsychologists still have a, a, a role to play in this whole process, because we actually test people. And why we want doctors to do at least some brief testing that's accurate in their offices. But assuming you have real mild cognitive impairment, over the next three years, your risk is about 50% of developing dementia. Now, what we always tell people is that's true, but that also means there's a 50% chance of you being in the group that either doesn't get worse or actually gets a bit better. Our goal is to put you in the 50% that doesn't get worse. So this is a wake-up call. This is a time for really evaluating. I'll go back and reread those chapters in the book and really evaluating where am I in terms of my brain health? What could I do better? Well, that's reassuring uh, because certainly my initial impression was, well, if I am di diagnosed with MCI, then it's just a one-way downhill, I might as well start writing my will. Not so. Well, it'd probably be good to have a will anyway, but the reality <laughs> is there's a tremendous number of our patients who have come in to us in even worse stages than mild cognitive impairment, who by using the principles that we actually outline in the book is preventative measure, measures that have been documented to actually reduce the rate of dementia by, you know, 50%. We have stabilized those people and in many cases have improved their cognition and kept it stable over time. So this is back to the play it where it lays uh, thought that Mitch has. You know, it's never too late to take these changes and make them um, applicable to your own, your own brain. Fantastic. Uh, on behalf of my fellow chronologically gifted people, I appreciate the fact that we have hope. Uh, and thank you both for taking time to talk to me today and to explain about your book. Uh, it is called Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. You can find it through Amazon uh, and I'm sure in many fine bookstores as well. Uh, thank you. Emily and Mitchell Kleonsky for being with us and for writing this very useful book that gives us all a little hope to, uh, to keep our brains together. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.